Have you ever been talking with someone about somebody else that you both know, and in the middle of the conversation, something is said, and then you start to wonder if you're really talking about the same person. You may say something like, the George that I knew, the George I'm talking about, graduated from Deer Park back in the 70s. And somebody else may say, oh, well, wait, wait a minute, the George that I knew, he didn't go to Deer Park. He graduated from Pasadena High School, and he didn't graduate until 1984. So we must be talking about different people. I'm sure we've all had those kind of conversations. I, I have them all the time. But have you ever been talking with somebody about Jesus? And in the middle of the conversation, you wonder if you're talking about the same Jesus. I think that happens all the time, too. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, probably the wintertime of 4 to 5 B.C., the Jesus who grew up in Nazareth and who had a public ministry that lasted about three years in which he did, some, did and said some extraordinary things, the Jesus who performed indisputable miracles to demonstrate that who he said he was was actually who he was, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and the only way to the Father. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about the Jesus that was arrested on the eve of the Passover, probably about A.D. 30, that was arrested, tried unfairly, and crucified. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about the Jesus that rose again three days later. That's the Jesus that you're talking about. The Jesus who will come again and will reign physically on earth for a thousand years before the eternal kingdom comes. The Jesus who is Lord over all creation. That's the Jesus that you're referring to and that I'm referring to when we talk about Jesus. But you got to know that not everybody's referring to that Jesus when they use the name. When many people talk about Jesus, they're just referring to a really good man, a really fine moral teacher who lived in the first century and called people to a great and changed ethical code, a moral code. That Jesus was certainly a moral man, but he wasn't God, according to them, if you're talking to somebody like that. And he's certainly not the only way to the Father. There's the Jesus of Islam, who was a prophet, an important one, to be sure, but certainly not the most important one, and heaven forbid, not God. And the Jesus of Islam was never crucified, so the whole resurrection thing wasn't an issue for them. Someone was substituted at the last minute for that Jesus, probably Judas. So the Jesus, the prophet, the Jesus that's the prophet in Islam is a different Jesus than the Jesus that you're talking about. Big difference from the two Georges I mentioned a moment ago. Two entirely different people. Let's not confuse them. There's the Jesus of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Very nice people, by the way. In their mind, Jesus is a very important person, but he's certainly not God, not in the sense that we worship God. Maybe God with a little g. In a weird sort of way that's difficult for them to explain, and, and heaven help them, it is difficult for them to explain. The Jesus of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, is, is in a way Satan's brother. Now, they don't like to talk about that, but that's part of their theology. There's the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, a very Aryan Jesus, who is not God, absolutely not God. He's probably Michael the Archangel, in their view. And he's a created being. The most important created being, the first created being, but certainly not the creator. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the creator of the universe, the one that spoke and everything came into existence. So we're talking about two entirely different things, and we ought not to confuse 
them. And I'm still trying to figure out who the Jesus of Oprah is. I don't think she can make her mind up. And the only reason I bring her name up is because she does talk about these things on her program and has done a lot of harm, quite frankly. And I don't mean to be offensive to the Oprah fans here, but she has. But my point is that just because somebody uses the name Jesus, it doesn't mean they're talking about the same Jesus that you worship, the same Jesus that you placed your faith in to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. That Jesus, it's a different Jesus. That's true today, and it's true in Corinth in the first century. As we've seen, the church in Corinth had been led astray by a group of troublemakers. That's what we called them last week. Some people call them Paul's enemy, Paul's opponents. But they were troublemakers. They came in after the apostle Paul and changed not only his theology or tried to alter his theology, but then trashed him in the process. And they had to do it because if they could take the apostle Paul down, if they could trash his character, they, they even went after his looks. They went after his ability to speak. They trashed all those things. If they can bring him down in his character, then they can bring his theology down. And we're going to see today that the things that were happening back then, same things that happened today, they were talking about a different Jesus in Corinth. And Paul had to correct this. They were spreading deceptive theology, false theology, and that was harmful to the church there. So Paul was forced to respond. I told you that over the last few weeks, I don't think he wanted to have to respond to this. I don't think Paul was a mean guy at all. I could be very, very wrong in terms of his personality, but I think he was probably a little reserved in his personality. A lot of times people are. Great presenters of the Word of God often are reserved in their personality. Dwight Pentecost, I mentioned him a moment ago, very reserved man personally, very understated personally. But get him to talk and he'll talk all day. But this church was being harmed by these false teachers. Paul had to respond not to rescue his own reputation. I don't think he cared a thing about that, except for the fact that his reputation was tied in with his message. So he couldn't let his reputation be trashed because they were also trashing his message at the same time. So he had to respond to save the church from, may I say, these bad people. Or at least these people were acting very poorly. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Verses 1 through 15 is our passage for today. I want you to read along with me, if you would. I'm going to read the passages in, in its entirety because I want you to get the overall flavor of it. Um, and then we're going to break it down into three or four different parts. So open your Bibles or your, or your iPads, as we said before, or your iPhones, whatever it is that you're, that you're reading the Scriptures from. I'm so glad people told me that they're actually reading the Bible on their iPhone. I thought you were texting each other. Um, <laughs> But I did know that happened to go on at least once. So somebody fessed up, not that you have to. <laughs> but I'm just going to trust if you've got your iPhone open that you're not checking your email and you're looking at the Bible right now. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Verse 3, but I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you did not receive, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I'm unskilled in speech, and yet not so in knowledge, 
In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I'm doing, I will continue to do. Then am I cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they're boasting? For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be in accordance with their deeds. Paul's first statement in verse 1 drips of divinely authorized sarcasm or irony, the same thing that he did in the previous chapter, when he, when he says, I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness. What he's really saying is, could you hang in there with me here? I'm, I'm not really sure I'm getting through to you. Could you bear with me? Sometimes when people have disciplined me in the past, that's what they've done. I sit down here, sport, I want you to listen to me. I don't think I'm getting through to you. <laughs> that's kind of what Paul's doing here with this group. Then in verse 2, he opens up his heart, and we see Paul, Paul drips with sarcasm in the one case, and then he tells them how much he loves them. This is not a bad thing that the apostle's doing. In, in fact, I warned you last week, I want to warn you again, Watch the sarcasm thing. The apostles, Paul's doing it under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He can get away with it here. It's usually not the best technique in interpersonal relationships. But in verse 2, he, he, he comes right back and lets them know how much he loves them. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed to you one husband that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. You remember last week we said that, that their gain was Paul's blessing. When they came to Christ, Paul was blessed. When they moved to maturity in Christ, Paul was happy about that, unlike the false teachers who were in it for themselves. Paul was blessed when they did well. And now what he's talking about today, he mentions jealousy. Granted, most of the time when we're jealous, it's not a good thing. It's a sinful thing. Not, not all the time, but most of the time. But the jealousy that Paul is expressing here is a godly jealousy. If we're jealous for righteousness... If we're jealous for someone's soul that they might be saved, that's a righteous thing. That's not a sinful thing. So there are times when you can be jealous and it's right. So all Paul's saying is, listen, I betrothed you to Christ. I want to present you as a pure virgin. He's using imagery going back again to chapter 5 with the judgment seat of Christ. He wants to be able to have you presented at the judgment seat of Christ in a pure way. And, and we're not have to worry about the sin situation. That's not what he's talking about here. But in a way of... Of, of, of one who has grown spiritually. That's the terminology, that's the imagery he's using here. So he does love them. He wants to do away with the troublemakers because they're hurting the people that he loves. Now in verse 3, and in fact in the rest of the paragraph, it's going to be one of those, okay, Paul, well tell us what you really think moments. You know, hey, hey, when somebody really kind of blurts it out, you say, okay. I, I, tell, tell me what's really on your mind. Well, that's, that's what Paul's going to do here. He's going to be worked up, and he's not going to pull any punches, so to speak. 
So listen carefully. He says, but I'm afraid lest the servant, or lest as the servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led away from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. You, you recall our scripture reading from this morning. Satan deceived Eve. And the primary deception in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, really was that God is not good. That's, that's what he's really using to deceive Eve. Is, did God really say that she couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge? Is, did he really say that? Then, of course, you remember Eve parrots it back, but she adds to what was said. Remember that we shouldn't eat it, nor should we touch it. Satan knows that he's got her, and then, then he turns right around and deceives her by challenging the character of God in that passage. Oh, no, no, the only problem here is God wants, he wants to keep this tree for himself. Because if you eat of it, you're going to be just as smart as he is. And who doesn't want to be just as smart as God? So what the, the essential lie was, was that God is not good, that he doesn't have your best interest in mind. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you'll become like him. Of course, it's interesting. Who else wanted to be God? Satan, exactly. He's, he's trying to get people to fall in the same way that he did. He was self-deceived at first, and now he wants to deceive everybody else. So Paul, wanting to get through to the Corinthians, brings up Satan. And he lets them know that you're being deceived. And there is a comparison here. Now, I'm not sure that the comparison is the one-for-one -one comparison. I'm not sure that he is comparing the false teachers or the opponents or the troublemakers to Satan specifically, but he's comparing the motives and he's comparing the outcome. They had been deceived. Now, he may be slipping a little bit of that, also, that comparison between Satan themselves and the false teachers. I've said before, it's impossible to know for certain if these false teachers were believers or not. I would kind of lean that they probably weren't, but I want to stay away from something that's not stated for certain. But here there does seem to be a parallel with the methodology. And then in verse 4, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. I got to tell you, that's not a compliment. He's now not patting them on the back here. You see, because what had happened, they had come preaching a different Jesus, just like we talked about a minute ago. Their Jesus wasn't the Jesus of the Bible, and the Corinthians accepted it. And if we read between the lines or do what's called a mirror reading, we can see some things in the text and we can go back to it. Not reading things into the text, but we can go back and understand things from the text. These people were probably very eloquent in their presentation. Very slick in their presentation. And I get that but because of what's going to happen in verse 6. I'll get to it in a minute. But they were probably very slick. And the slickness got the deception through. And the, the Jesus that they preached was not the same Jesus. Now the Spirit that's mentioned here is not the same Holy Spirit. The Spirit is probably probably referring to the, the one who is teaching. That's the way that term is used sometimes. But, but above all, maybe, or at least in, on a par with having a different Jesus, they accepted a different gospel. Remember that happened in Corinth, I mean in Galatia too. And Paul has to come and write a letter to them and says, what is the matter with you people? <laughs> you know, I just left and now you've been so quickly bewitched by these folks that have come in behind me. Again, he's doing this in love. And that's one of the key things I want you to remember here, just in case I forget to tell you enough today. This is an act of love on Paul's part. We need to speak the truth in love. We don't speak it in anger. And I don't think he's speaking it in anger here, but he's very enthusiastic here. A lie that is said beautifully 
is very dangerous because it makes the lie more palatable. The first movie that I ever went to at the movie theater was Mary Poppins. And I remember a line from Mary Poppins that said, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Exactly. You still remember that too. It's been a long time. Of course, I have Mary Poppins now on video and we watch it with the, with the grandkids. That was, it, was a great, it was a great film. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Well, a slick presentation can sometimes get the lie through. Now, that doesn't mean a slick presentation is necessarily wrong. I, I hope people, when they preach the Word of God, work on their presentation. Uh, would that we do better with our presentations. But just because the presentation is good doesn't mean it's the truth. That's why you have the Holy Spirit, this discerning spirit from the Holy Spirit, to help you to understand if it's true or not. That's why you have the Word of God in front of you today. So you say, does it really say that? Well, yeah, it does. It really does say that. These people come across as really nice, these opponents, these troublemakers, these false teachers. But Satan came across as really nice in the garden too. He came across as Eve's friend, not as her enemy. So Paul's warning them here. They appear very pleasant, but they're deadly. Hold, hold your place here and quickly look to the end of the passage in verses 13 through 15, and you'll see how Paul's going to describe them there. For such men, he's talking about these opponents, these false teachers, these deceivers, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. These are deceptive people. Deceptive people don't come up to you with a t-shirt that says, I'm a false teacher, I'm a false prophet, stay away from me. No, they dress up, their hair looks good, they've taken a bath, they're, they're pleasant people to be around, they've got good personalities, just like Satan did in the garden. And again, I'm going to mention one in a moment that I think is preaching a different Jesus and I, I'm not saying that he's an evil person, I'm just, but I, or any of these people. We have, we have to be very careful with this. We need to be able to discern truth from error without having to be overly critical of the person presenting it. That's not what Paul is doing here so much. He's just trying to rescue them from these false teachers. But he says, you just bear this beautifully. You seem to have no problem with it if someone comes in and preaches a different Jesus. If someone comes and gives you a different gospel, that's no problem. As long as they did it in a real nice way, as long as they're nice. Now, if they came in mean, we wouldn't like that, would we? But boy, they're so nice. And guess what? They really are. A lot of times they really are nice people. Now, I do this with some hesitation, but it's my responsibility in the body of Christ to tell it like it is, like Paul's doing here, but to speak it in love. So I, I really hope you'll take this in love. But you take a man like Robert Schuller. For men like Schuller, who by all accounts is a really nice guy, the essential problem facing human beings is not sin and its eternal penalty, it's a lack of self-esteem. In fact, under this philosophy, Jesus did not die to pay the penalty for sin. He died so that man could recover his lost self-esteem. I see a couple of you are having a hard time believing me about this. I, I wish I was making it up. I'm not. From his book, and I quote, living positively one day at a time. 
Jesus knew his worth. His success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. And the cross will satisfy the ego trip. Did you see that? He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. And this is one of the most incredible statements I've ever heard. And the cross will sanctify the ego trip. Now, whatever that is, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not what happened on Golgotha. That's not the Jesus who was scourged, who had the crown of thorns shoved into his head, who carried his own cross, who suffered a, a, a death that no one else has ever had to suffer. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, whatever it is. So that's what I'm trying to say to you today, that even though somebody's really nice like Schuller, and listen, I'm not trying to pick on Schuller. He's retired. He's 87 years old. He, for all accounts, real nice guy, and I'm sure some good things happened at the church. But if Paul's going to talk about a different Jesus and a different gospel, we just need to be aware of this. So for Schuller, what does it mean to be born again? Again, and I quote Schuller. Not making this stuff up, I quote him, to be born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem, from fear to love, from doubt to trust. How can this happen? It happens through a meeting with the ideal one. From my perspective, I'm quoting Schuler. from my perspective, I would expect such an ideal one to ignore or reject me because of my own shortcomings. And I... And I insert a parenthesis here, so he does know about the sin issue. I mean, he, he brings it up, but he won't call it that. Now, back to Schuler. But in fact, the ideal one receives me as his peer and treats me as an equal, even though he knows who and what I am, the ill I've done and the good I've failed to do, then something profoundly deep will happen at the core of my personality. I will be born again. Now that may be something, but it's not John chapter 3. With all due respect, with all due respect, Jesus does call me his brother, he does. But I'm not Jesus' peer. He's the master of the universe. He's my boss. I'm not his peer. I'm not his equal. Heaven forbid. You don't worship your equal, not in that way. Now, Jesus worshiped the Father among equals, but that was something totally different. But, but we worship one that is infinitely superior to us. The biblical model of man's need is a bit more than simply a passive failure to do good. Our problem started with an active choice to do that which is contrary to the will of God. But did you see where Dr. Schuler went off the grid? He went off the grid in, with two doctrines. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus Christ was and the gospel. And I would propose to you those are some pretty serious areas for the train to run off the tracks. Same thing was happening in Corinth. Same thing. Somebody comes and preaches a different Jesus, a different spirit, which is a teaching spirit, and a different gospel. And you bear it beautifully. Now I'm not saying that you need to get on the internet today and trash Robert Schuller. That's not the point. You would have missed the whole point of this if that's what you do. But what we need to do is be careful in discerning with whether something is true from the Bible or whether it's not. 
And then like Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, then we need to speak the truth in love. And I can say, Robert Schuller, nice guy, but what he said wasn't true. And I can't say, well, it's, you know, it's his opinion. It's, it's, his opinion is good as mine. Well, yeah, maybe it's good as mine, but it's not as good as what's in the Word. You see, we have a standard that we have to go by. And again, I, I, I quote him not to pick on him. I quote him not to pick on anybody that he's mentored. He's got some really famous people that he's mentored, so some of the most famous Christians on the planet. Dr. Schuler mentored or say that Schuler was their mentor. However, one that's probably the most famous Christian on the planet right now, outside of maybe Billy Graham, he will give the gospel in his presentation. He, he will do it. So, and, and the Jesus he preaches is the Jesus of the Bible. So let's not, let's not do all this guilt by association thing. I only mention Schuler because I think it's a perfect example of what we have here today. Believe it or not, I have no problem with feeling good about yourself or having a positive self-esteem. I, I want you to. You should have great self-esteem because of who you are in Jesus Christ, but not because you're Jesus' peer or his equal. In verses 5 through 12, Paul compares himself with the behavior of the false apostles and the deceitful workers. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now, he's, he calls them false apostles at the end of the section, but here he's, this is very tongue-in-cheek. He's not talking about Peter or John here or James. He's talking about these same guys that are calling themselves apostles in Corinth. And this, again, is dripping with a little bit of irony. I consider myself not in the least inferior to these guys. But even if I am un unskilled in speech, now we, we've talked about this for a couple of years now. This was one of the accusations I made. This is one of the places we get it from. They'd gone around saying he can't preach his way out of a paper bag. I can't believe you listened to that guy. And Paul says, well, okay, let's just assume that's true for a second. Let's say I am unskilled in speech. I'm not so as to knowledge. Yeah, they may have a better presentation, but listen, you better listen to what I'm saying because what I'm telling you is the truth, my friends. I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. Now, how did he make it evident? Well, he made it evident by his behavior, for one thing. Or, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? What he's saying, when I came to Corinth, I didn't accept a dime from you guys. Didn't accept a penny, not for myself. When he was in Corinth, he said, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and it was a need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they, Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. You remember back to chapters 8 and 9, the Macedonians were the poor ones. And Corinth was the rich church. So he's saying, when I was in Corinth, I wasn't a burden to you at all. In fact, I didn't take any offering from you at all. I had the right to do it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, he uses the illustration of a soldier that shouldn't have to serve at his own expense. In the ancient world, oftentimes soldiers did have to provide their own armor. They provided their own food. They served at their own expense. And Paul's saying, that's not right. If you're serving a whole country, the country ought to support you. And in a church, if you're supporting the church or if you're ministering to the church, the church ought to support you. But he didn't use that in Corinth. In fact, he went one step further. Not only did he take money from the poor saints in Macedonia who were more spiritual than the Corinthians, that's why he took it, in order to minister to the Corinthians. In fact, we, we could say that Corinth was a mission field at that point. And the Macedonians, people in Philippi and Thessalonica, they supplied the money for that mission field down in Corinth.
But Paul went one step further. Acts chapter 18, verse 3 mentions that Paul worked as a tent maker for Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. So not only did he not take a time, he worked during the day so he could preach at night. Now, while, again, it's not stated, but we, we have to be careful, but it seems to be implied, it looks like the false teachers took money from them. And what Paul's saying, listen, I had, you should have been taking care of me, but I didn't ask for any money from you because you weren't ready spiritually. You shouldn't have been taking care of them, and they demanded money from you. At least that's what it looks like if we do what's called a mirror reading in New Testament studies. So he says, listen, I, I wasn't a burden to you. Then in verses 10 through 12, again, I want you to see Paul loves this bunch. He's pouring his heart out to them. He's saying, don't fall for these guys. They don't love you. They're pretending to be someone they're not, and they're hurting you. As to the truth of Christ in me, in verse 10, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But what I'm doing I will continue to do, that I may cut off an opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the manner in which you're boasting, or they're boasting. He's not really cutting them down personally so much. He's just saying they're not apostles. They don't have your best interests in mind. They don't love you. I do. And I proved it to you when I was there. I taught you, and I taught you free. And I taught you the truth. And like the Bereans, you could go back and look and see if what I was telling you was the truth. But the guys, the, the guys, the teaching of these guys, it's a different Jesus. People can use that name all, all day long, and it doesn't mean you're talking about the same person. Right? Satan loves that. It's one of the easiest things he can do is to get people that are not well-versed in the Bible. He sends people to their door. They say, oh, we believe in Jesus. You know, somebody might say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Oh, we do too. We do too. Oh, well, come on in. Have a cup of coffee. Let's sit down and talk. But by the time you get finished, your head's spinning because the Jesus they're talking about doesn't sound like the Jesus, you know, but they had verses. They got, had a pamphlet. They had a book, a booklet. And then you start looking at the verses and you see, no, that's, that's deceptive. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. You know, people can use Bible verses even to deceive you if you take them out of their context. And then I've already mentioned verses 13 through 15 to you where he just tells you these people are not who they say they are. They're hurting you. Our time is at an end for today, so where should we be now in our minds, in our heads, in our hearts as we finish these verses? Well, I think one thing, perhaps one of the most important things I want you to know today is that you can't judge truth simply by the slickness of the presentation. As children of God, as those who have been saved by grace through faith, apart from any works that we might could, could do, just, just on the basis of simple faith, faith alone in Christ alone, we have the responsibility to be discerning. We don't have the right to excuse false teaching because the teacher appears to be a really nice guy or a really nice girl. We don't have that right. God has demanded that we be discerning. Another thing I think that I uh, hope that we come away from, uh, away with here this morning, is that those who appear as angels of light are sometimes not. Now, I'm a nice guy too, right? 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 
So you, <laughs> but not everybody that's nice, like me, is, uh, is an angel of light. Sometimes people are angels of darkness. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we have to be careful. If we go soft on the truth, and again, I want you to see, Paul's not talking about peripheral things here. He's not talking about whether we need to immerse or whether we need to sprinkle when we baptize. Or whether you go down three times or one time. Or whether we meet on Saturday night or Sunday morning. He's not talking about any of that kind of stuff. He's not talking about whether you have contemporary music or traditional music in a worship service. All the things that we might think are extremely important in some circles. But that's not Paul. Paul's talking about the person and the work of Jesus. Those are non-negotiables. I don't care what style of worship you have. Those are non-negotiables. So if we go soft on truth then we place ourselves in a position between God and the agents of darkness. And my friends, that's not a position you want to be in. You never want to be in a position of defending the, the teaching of an agent of darkness. And one final warning, I want you to be careful here. Don't make it your mission in life to expose and condemn the people so much. If you go to the web, it's sickening sometimes. I mean, you can go to the web, you can go to the web and put in anybody. I don't care who they are, and there will be people that have websites just condemning them. I mean, which is it's a sad thing. That's not the point. My point this morning wasn't to condemn Robert Schuler, but I, I would condemn what he said. Okay. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I think that feeds into some people's ego that, that I can cut that other person down. That's not it. Just stay away from it. Just recognize it for what it is. If somebody asks you, say, well, he's a nice guy, but I certainly couldn't go along with him on his theology because the Bible says this. It's an opportunity for you. You need to firmly, we all need to firmly reject false teaching. Speak the truth. Stand for the truth. But do it in love. Heavenly Father, we're so appreciative of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be wealthy. Not wealthy with respect to material things, but wealthy with respect to spiritual things. And we have a wealth of spiritual knowledge at our disposal. It's sitting in most of our laps right now, the Word of God. Help us to be careful with it. Help us to rightly divide it. And help us to handle it well so that we might discern truth from error. And then when we see error, help us to lovingly correct it. Not going after the person but going after the truth. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.